time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. In this second half of Season 3, we're traveling back to Tudor England to spend some time with a few of its queens. Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr. You've heard the rhyme, haven't you? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. King Henry VIII's wives have long captured our imaginations, fascinating us with their tumultuous rises, sometimes perilous queenships, and often dramatic falls. They lived privileged, sumptuous, and extremely singular lives, the kind that most women of their age could only dream of. But they were still women, experiencing many of the same trials and challenges as all the others. These episodes aren't going to be straight birth-to-death biographies. There are so many fantastic podcasts that have done that work already, and I'll make sure to feature some in the show notes. Instead, these six women are going to be our guides as we dive into different aspects of womanhood in the Tudor era. They will give us glimpses into things like courtship and sex, pregnancy and childbirth, religion and female education. We will walk alongside them to see how these issues touched a Tudor queen's life, but they will also offer us a window through which to see what they looked like for all women of the age. Lucky for us, we have an expert in all things Tudor women traveling with us on this journey. Her name is Elizabeth Norton, the historian who wrote a book called The Lives of Tudor Women. Now, grab your rosary and your relic of the Virgin Mary's breast milk. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Lisa, Kate, Jamie, Taylor, Diana, Catherine, Lisa, Alicia, Kara, Bronwyn, Christy, and Bethany. My newest lady presidents, Tom Marilyn, Kia, Molly, Jesse, Audrey, and Ashley. My boss ladies, Rebecca, Sarah S., Elizabeth M., Tonya, Nuria, Grace, Michelle, Monique, Annabelle, Amy, and Jessica, Sophie, and Julian. My adventuresses, Terry, Anna, Carlos, Emily, Helena, Iris, Jessica, Amber, Joe Marie, Kelly, Megan, Chris, Stephanie C, and Stephanie F. My warrior queens and some of my youngest patrons, Sloane, age 6, and Neve, age 4. Kate, Lori, Alexis, and Avery. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Samara, Katie, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my fabulous Lady Pharaohs, Sophie, Skylar, and the three lovely Courtneys. Thank you so much to all of my patrons who are crucial in helping me keep the show going. I appreciate you more than I can say. For as little as $3 a month, patrons get access to exclusive bonus episodes, interviews with special guests, sneak peeks and early access, exclusive giveaways, contests, polls, behind-the-scenes glimpses, you name it. To find out more about it, just go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
queen looks around the courtroom. It's packed with powerful men, archbishops, lawyers, men of the law and of God, and her husband, her king, on his throne, all draped in cloth of gold. He is here in front of this court because he wants to divorce her. No, he wants to prove their marriage was never real at all. For 20 years, Catherine has played the game of queenship. She has been a good wife, a pious queen, and everything a successful consort is supposed to be. And yet here she is, enduring her husband, trying to prove that she is not the rightful queen, that her daughter, Mary, has no claim on England's throne. But God is on her side, and Catherine will not be silent. The room hushes as she stands, the crimson velvet of her gown brushing the witnesses as she weaves across the floor. When she reaches her husband's throne, she goes down on her knees before him, not to pray, but to speak the truth. Religion lives at the heart of Catherine of Aragon's story, and at the very center of life for everyone in Tudor England, women included. So let's walk beside her, exploring the role religion plays in her reign, and in the day-to-day -day of the ladies all around her. Catherine's relationship to God, we need to go back, way back. Catherine is born on December 16, 1485. It's said that her mother, Isabella, had been riding all day in the saddle, and then chose to go back on the march shortly after giving birth to her youngest daughter. That's just how passionate she felt about her and her husband's holy war. Catherine's parents, Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon, were one of Europe's true power couples. When they got together, they reigned for the first time over a powerful and unified Spain. So much of their lives and rules were driven by religion. In fact, they were referred to as the Catholic Monarchs, and they earned that title through faith, conviction, and, well, some rather ruthless persecution. When Catherine was young, her kingdom was diverse, both ethnically and religiously, home to Jews, Muslims, and Christians. But her parents saw it as their duty to make theirs a strictly Catholic nation. Back in 1478, the Pope himself, Sixtus IV, issued a decree asking them to root out heresy, defined as deviation from Catholic doctrine. Isabella and Ferdinand were more than happy to oblige. And so began the famed Spanish Inquisition. At first, the mission was to get people to convert. The Inquisition was meant to identify those who didn't really mean it in their hearts. You would know when the Inquisition reached your town when an Edict of Grace was announced, giving you 40 days to come forward and confess your sins against God and Catholicism. Many people would, as the punishments, if you confessed willingly, were more lenient than if you waited for someone else to tell on you, which happened frequently. These confessions were rife with anonymous accusations. Those found guilty were imprisoned, exiled, or made to wear a garment marking them out as sinners. Those who refused to convert or recant were sometimes burned at the stake. Yikes. 
Isabella and Ferdinand were righteous and passionate about the Inquisition. If they couldn't get people to convert to what they said was the true religion, then they needed to pack their bags and leave ASAP. In 1492, they issued the Alhambra Decree, which gave Jews just four months to convert to Catholicism or leave the country. Later, they would do the same to those who practiced Islam. This would go on for hundreds of years, all in the name of God. Catherine grows up in this tense religious climate, and much of the time, she lives it. She spends much of her childhood on the road, on campaign with her parents, as they work to conquer the Moorish kingdom of Granada. In 1499, they settle in the Alhambra, the palace where the last Nasrid sultan once reigned. Catherine spends many of her formative years secluded with her siblings in this beautiful palace full of burbling fountains, arched hallways, and surrounded by Islamic artistry, with calligraphy carved into the walls that say things like, There is no victor but God. The Princess of Spain is extremely well-educated. She learns the womanly arts, of course, sewing, dancing, weaving. But she also immerses herself in Christian Latin literature, history, philosophy, and even law. The tutor her mother picks out for her is a holy man, and it's no surprise that she is taught to be a pious Catholic, making religious belief and practice a central part of her life. In many places at this time, including England, all girls are taught that their chief duty is to be godly. They are the ones charged with ensuring that their families are the same. They must be a moral paragon so that the oft-sinning men around them are inspired to behave more chastely. And she's responsible for making sure her children follow the word of God. Catherine grows up hearing that piety is one of a woman's most important qualities. As for learning what it meant to be a pious Catholic queen, she had a role model close at hand. Catherine grows up knowing she will one day be a queen herself. From the age of three, she is engaged to English Prince Arthur Tudor. His father, Henry VII, is the first Tudor king in England, and with such a shaky claim on the throne, he wants his son to marry into old royal blood and old dynastic money. Isabella and Ferdinand hope that, in giving up their youngest daughter, the English king will help them in their fight against France. By the time Catherine sets sail for England in 1501, she is already married by proxy. Her husband, whom she has yet to set eyes on, has been writing her flowery letters for years, and yet it must make her heart hurt to sail away from Spain and her family, and all she's ever known, perhaps never to see them again, for a land she doesn't really know. The journey is long and arduous. The first thing Catherine of Aragon does when she reaches English soil is go to church. And she is welcomed by throngs of well-wishers eager to see the red-haired Spanish princess. When she rides into London, there are parades in her honor. Everyone is thrilled at the prospect of their handsome 15-year-old prince marrying this regal 16-year-old beauty. So when she and Arthur finally enter St. Paul's Cathedral to be married, Catherine must feel a sense of destiny, of God's guiding hand taking her toward her queenly fate. That night, at the wedding feast, she dances with her husband and laughs with his family. And then she and Arthur are ceremonially put to bed. They are undressed by their attendants, then sat together on a bed while an archbishop and a bishop stand over them, blessing the bed and that their union will be fruitful. No pressure! 
And then all the witnesses leave, the curtains close, and the teenaged couple are left alone. What happens? I mean, people are gonna make assumptions. The next morning, Arthur swaggers out of the boudoir, saying to his buddy, Sir Anthony Willoughby, Willoughby, bring me a cup of ale, for I have been this night in the midst of Spain. Oh, Arthur, nobody likes a guy who kisses and tells. But do they consummate their marriage that night? Do they ever? It's a question with religious implications, and it's one we'll be returning to shortly. On April 5th, 1502, just five months after they got married, Prince Arthur sickens and, to everyone's shock, he dies. At just 16 years old, Catherine is now a widow. But instead of seeing her as a member of the family to be protected, King Henry VII sees her as a bargaining chip. Her parents still haven't paid him the full dowry he was promised, and he wants it. But Ferdinand and Isabella want their daughter engaged to the next in line before more jewels leave their hands. Henry Tudor, then just 10 years old, already has a bit of a crush on his brother's widow. Sure, Catherine's a bit older than he is, but that won't be so big an issue when Henry comes of age. But religiously speaking, there is a problem with her marrying the Tudor spare. Canon law forbids a woman from marrying her husband's brother. But here's the thing, Catherine says, and her lady's maid vehemently backs her up on it. She and Arthur never actually consummated their marriage, and thus it isn't considered legally binding. Despite all of young Arthur's boastful claims, Catherine swears that they only lay in the same bed together for seven nights during their marriage, and things never got physical. She swears it on the sacrament to a papal legate, and so everyone wants to believe it's true. In 1503, King Ferdinand puts his feelings about it in writing. It is well known in England that the princess is still a virgin. So they get the Pope to write a papal bull to give them permission to get engaged. At the time, it's just considered a formality, some red tape to swiftly snip through. Little does Catherine know how it will come to haunt her later. In 1503, young Henry and Catherine are finally engaged. It is agreed that they'll get married once Henry turns 15. But King Henry VII is already having reservations. Is Catherine really the most advantageous choice for England's next queen? His doubts only grow louder in 1504 when Isabella dies, plunging Spain into chaos. But if he sends her back, he will never get his hands on that dowry. So he keeps her on the hook in England, all the while discreetly looking into other marriage prospects for his son. In the years to come, neither Ferdinand nor Henry VII feel that it's his duty to pay for Catherine's upkeep. She writes pleading letters to both men, but to no avail. She spends six lonely, stressful years in discomfort and humiliation, having to sell her lands and jewels to pay her servants, doing the Tudor-era equivalent of couch-surfing between different royal households. Her servants are in rags, her own threadbare dresses growing inches too short for her. By 1508, she is so tired of it all that she asks to go back to Spain and become a nun. But then, in 1509, Henry VII dies, and it's Henry VIII's turn to rule. This series isn't about Henry, really, so I'm going to try to shove him offstage as often as possible, but let's take this moment to read his dating profile, shall we? Hello, ladies. I'm Henry, 
long of limb and blessed with a fine head of ginger hair. I cut quite a fine figure on the dance floor. I defy you to resist my finely toned calves. I'm a passionate sportsman, hawking, jousting, hunting, etc. But I also have an artsy, creative side. I'm an accomplished musician. If you're lucky, I might just write you a madrigal. My chivalry game is unparalleled. I'm likely to romance you right out of your kirtle before you know what's hit you. Fair warning. This strapping 18-year-old king strides into Catherine's apartments and makes her year by asking her to be his wife and queen. Catherine, 23 years old, is relieved and elated, but no one is at all surprised by Henry's choice. He spent years admiring the beautiful Spanish princess, and the fact that his father tried to keep them apart probably only made winning her all the sweeter. Catherine will also help legitimize the Tudor dynasty. Henry VIII is the first of his line to inherit the throne through regular old succession rather than war, and having a wife from such a distinguished family isn't gonna hurt him any. It seems that Catherine's many prayers have finally been answered, and she can start being the queen she was born and raised to be. But again, there is a religious problem here, as it's against God's law to marry your brother's widow. The Pope gives them permission, of course, and they are married in a private ceremony. Catherine wears white satin and lets her long, red hair flow freely, emphasizing to all who see her that she is going into the second marriage, still a virgin, okay? They will both be coronated at Westminster Abbey two weeks later. On June 24th, they process behind 28 bishops from the Palace of Westminster to the Abbey for their coronation, and religion will play a big part in the ceremony. This coronation is, at its most basic level, God's blessing of their right to rule. The English Queen's coronation also emphasizes her special relationship with God, encouraging her to cultivate virtue and spread the Christian faith. The most important role model for all women of this age is the Virgin Mary, the ultimate example of Christian chastity and motherhood. But she represents specific virtues for queens. Catherine has a special connection with Mary, who, as Queen of Heaven, is the heavenly equivalent of earthly queens. That connection gives her a special kind of power, as mediator between her king and the people. If the king is seen as the head of the nation, the queen is seen as its heart. This public anointing and coronation empower Catherine as Henry's partner in sacred monarchy. It deems their union legitimate in the eyes of the law and her rule legit under the eyes of God. And so, scepter in hand and crown on her head, Catherine is once again queen, at last. Let's leave her sitting triumphant on her throne for a minute and talk about religion in Tudor England. For the first couple of decades of the Tudor period, England is a staunchly Catholic nation. Like, really Catholic nation. Religion lives at the very center of life, and almost everyone believes in God. Here's Elizabeth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God was everywhere. I mean, we're in an era that's largely pre-science. Um, and so actually the world looked miraculous to 16th century people in a way that we can understand more about you know, natural processes, natural sciences, actually a lot of what happened was just inexplicable and was clearly the work of God. And I think that's really kind of the key point to take from religion in the period. 
In an age of superstition, where so little is understood about the world's workings, life is hard, and people die all the time, religion is a way to make sense of things. It's a comfort and a framework by which to interact with the world. Its presence is felt in good times, at christenings and weddings, and in hard times, too. Churches, abbeys, and nunneries are in every town, feeding the poor and taking in the sick. Religious conviction and practice are deeply felt and deeply important, and on a practical level, too. The Tudor year is structured around holy days and high holidays. They are even used to keep the time. Instead of saying, I'll meet up with you on Tuesday, for example, you're more likely to say, I'll meet up with you on St. Michael's Day. Plays with biblical themes are performed during festivals, and religious relics or icons are paraded through the streets. Catholics believe in the spiritual power of material objects, things like consecrated bread and wine, holy water, saint's bones, fragments of the cross, drops of Christ's blood. And so, tutors often go on pilgrimage to see and pray to these objects. Many believe that being in their presence will bring you closer to God. Closer to home, farmers regularly use Panis Benedictus, the bread used during the transubstantiation, tossing it over crops to ensure they flourish. Women often turn to such relics in times of crisis. As we'll talk about in a future episode, pregnancy in this period is one of the most dangerous adventures a woman can go on. And so women who are expecting, royal and otherwise, often ask to use a church's holy girdle when their time to deliver comes. What exactly is a girdle? I'm glad you asked. Here's Elizabeth. A girdle is sort of underwear. Um, so it's, you know, it's Our Lady, it's the Virgin Mary's underwear. Um, and they would sort of clutch it um, while they're in labor to alleviate their labor pains and to hope, you know, for some sort of spiritual help. So, I mean, most, most Tudor women don't have access to the Virgin Mary's girdle, um, but there are other techniques that they use. There's, there's, a, there's a very sniffed report um, from the late 16th century from a, from a priest about... Um, because the women of their town would run to the church and tie their shoelaces around um, sort of the bell ropes and things. So, you know, it was, and that was to alleviate the pains and danger of childbirth. And it's because people are really scared. So they're trying to come up with a way that they can take action to help themselves. In Tudor England, the Catholic Church is a powerful institution. It owns a quarter of the land and is richer than just about everyone, including the king himself. Separation of church and state? Hell no. In this age, they're hopelessly, thornily entwined. Monasteries and nunneries are the bedrock of every town. They supply spiritual guidance, of course, but for centuries they have supplied a whole lot more. They are where many people turn if they need medical treatment. They give alms to the poor, and they offer employment. A lot of farmers and craftsmen work directly for the local monastery, and sometimes women can earn money doing things like washing the monks' clothes. And for women who can't or won't get married, nunneries offer them a socially acceptable, even prestigious alternative. We often get this image of nunneries as places wayward girls are sent against their will. And sure, sometimes. But they also present women with opportunities they wouldn't get otherwise. They are centers of learning, where women can practice art, read great literature, dabble in medicine, and of course practice philanthropy. They can discuss important spiritual matters without being told to sit down and zip their lips. Nunneries are safe places for women, and they're mostly run by the gals. 
The prestigious role of abbess, the female head of a nunnery, is one of the only visible, official roles a woman will be given in the world of the church. Everybody in England is subject to church law, and going to church every week is required. Priests are often dealing with people's disputes relating to marriage, society's moral code, and issues of legitimacy. Women, of course, are a big part of their local congregation. Field work, aka men's work, is considered more important than household work, so women are often told to attend church more often than their husbands, or that they should continue praying and not return to work as soon as the men do after Mass. This reinforces the general belief that women are more religious and pious than men. Of course, the clergy still find reasons to complain about their female parishioners. For example, how some come to church too finely dressed, clearly hoping to attract and seduce the men. Women and men are usually separated during Mass for just that purpose. Which for women is often nice, it gives them time out from under the eyes of their menfolk and to bond with their lady friends. Even in church, though, we see that how much money you have impacts your experience there. A good seat in church gives you a good view and puts you closer to a holy object, which means that wealthy women usually reside in them. Poor women, with less social clout, usually stand in the back. Keep in mind that during this time, the Bible and services in church are all in Latin. No one has their own English copy at home to leaf through and come to their own conclusions. Their congregation relies on their priest to tell them the word of God and to interpret it. This is a potent power indeed. And of course, the church and its priests are setting the tone for social expectations for women. Images and paintings in church all tend to promote submission and modesty in women. Priests underscore this in confession and at mass, expounding on the idea that women's primary identities are as wives and mothers. In other words, good Christian behavior is tied to gender roles, and failure to conform is seen as not only unfortunate, but sinful. Church is still a place for women to exercise their leadership skills. There are all-female parish guilds, groups that give women a place to socialize, talk about their shared experiences, and display their piety by assisting with fundraising and maintaining the parish. Imagine having a place to talk freely with your ladies, away from the demands of father, husband, and house. Of course, that means that some men are afraid of these all-women parish guilds, as they think this temporary release from the husband's control will lead to sin, mischief, and rebellion. I hope that at least some rebellion is involved. Women also perform most of their local church's domestic duties, washing decorative linens, sewing and repairing altar coverings, cleaning and refreshing God's house. This is good for their souls, of course, but women are often paid for these services as well. No women are allowed to become priests or archbishops. Oh no. But that doesn't mean they don't have important roles to play. Here's Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, women play a huge role in the church. Um, in the 16th century, people argue over the right way to worship God, but nobody, or almost nobody, doesn't believe in God. You know, everybody believes in God in some way, and that's why the arguments over religion are so important and so dangerous, because, you know, there's clearly a right way to worship God, because, of course, he exists, as far as, you know, the 16th century mind view goes. And women are really, really enmeshed in the church in the period. As you say, they're not they're not running the church you know they're not preaching but they are very very involved you know they are the parishioners um, and women are sort of viewed as 
innately more into the church, if you like, than men in many respects. In a similar way to now, actually, it's often the women of the family who are the more eager churchgoers. Um, women, of course, are responsible for their children's early education. Um, so that includes religious education, because again, religion is so central. Um, so it's often the mother that sort of pushes the children towards one side of the religious spectrum, whether it's Catholic or it's Protestant. There is one crucial religious function that certain women get to perform. Midwives are given the right to perform baptisms because of how often babies die during labor or shortly afterward. If that baby isn't baptized, they can't go to heaven. So this is one of Tudor England's most fraught and sacred duties. They have a really, really crucial role because they're actually the only women who are authorized by the church to perform a sacrament. They can perform the sacrament of baptism. And so this is really, really key and really unusual because generally women are not allowed anywhere near the running of the church. Special baptism rites and abbesses aside, there is only one position within the church that's open to women. Let's talk a bit about prophetesses. What are they exactly? Here's Elizabeth. And so these are women who um, speak for God. You know, God speaks through them. It's the Tudor notion that a woman is a man's intellectual and moral inferior that makes her a particularly good candidate for being God's earthly mouthpiece. Her words aren't her own. They come directly from the Holy Father. So, if she happens to say something rather scandalous or confronting, look, don't hang the messenger. In this way, prophecy offers women a rare chance to get directly involved in politics. In fact, one such prophetess gets involved in Henry and Catherine's love life. Let's meet her. Elizabeth Barton is a peasant girl from Kent, and while she's working in the house, in a farmhouse of a, of a local gentleman, she starts to have visions. She falls ill and sort of writhes around on the floor and um, has visions where a voice appears to come from her stomach and starts prophesying the future. Um, she is investigated by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he accepts her sanctity. Um, she then is taken to Court of Street, which is a sort of small chapel where the Virgin Mary has told her there will be a miracle. So she goes there with a huge crowd watching and starts writhing around and talking for several hours um, in this strange voice. She's so convincing, in fact, that she becomes a nun at the direct urging of the powerful Archbishop of Canterbury. Pretty soon, she's known far and wide as the Holy Maid of Kent. She might be a farm gal, but she goes on to become influential at the very highest level. Um, she asks William Warham, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, for an, an audience with Cardinal Wolsey, who is Henry VIII's chief minister. And that is, of course, granted because she's a holy woman. And Wolsey seems to be quite frightened of her. And um, certainly Thomas Cranmer, who later becomes Archbishop of Canterbury, believed that both Wolsey and his predecessor, Warham, were frightened of her with her godly threatenings, he calls it. So, you know, she basically threatens them from God to do what she wants. Elizabeth's visions and bold protestations will come to play a role in Catherine of Aragon's story. But let's leave her for now, men weeping as they see her coming, and Catherine secure and beloved on her throne. Next time, we'll talk more about women and religion in the Tudor era including what happens when Henry decides he wants a divorce and the Pope isn't down with it, and the implications of the English Reformation for the ladies. Until next time. 
Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show or rate and review it wherever you listen. You'll find show notes for this and every episode at my website, theexploresspodcast.com, which includes a full transcript, lots of images, and a list of my sources. You'll also find a link to my Patreon, which is a great way to support the show and keep it going. You can also find me on Instagram at the Explores Podcast and occasionally on Twitter and Facebook. A special thank you to Elizabeth Norton for time traveling with us. You can find her at her website, elizabethnorton.co.uk. She's written tons of great books on this era, so go and grab yourself one. So much love goes to my intern, Carly Quinn, without whom this episode would not have been possible. Much of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of the Tudor Consort, a choral group in New Zealand, as well as guitarist John Sales. Thank you, as always, to Mr. Explores, a.k.a. Paul Gablonski, for my theme music and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Eva Folch, Chris at Naturally RP, Andy Cancun at Jenkins, and Baz at VoiceOver Elite. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.